as power hits. Oh, dear Heavenly Father, we're grateful and thankful just for another day, just to be alive and have the chance to serve you and bring you glory and fulfill your purpose for our lives. We thank you for this opportunity in this beautiful place to gather together as family, to be united in the faith as brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. Help us never be familiar, Father, with this beautiful thing you've given us by grace, and especially for the salvation you granted us by grace through faith in your precious Son. Father, we ask that you bless everyone listening right now, that you help us all concentrate on your word and help us understand spiritual things through your Holy Spirit. We ask these things in Christ's precious name, and it's by the power of your spirit we pray. Amen. All right, evangelism, effective evangelism, part two. I'm very excited that the spirit let me share these things with you. Um, there's some things, as I mentioned on Wednesday, that I've been building up in my own soul and my own understanding. And, um, you know, even over the last six months or a year, these things have been compiling for me um, in study and in experience. And I'm really excited to share it with you and just hope it's something that you can use in your own walk, in your own evangelism. Uh, first of all, many thanks to Pastor Collins for the chance to fill in for him again this week while he's on vacation. What we're going to see today in this study is the biblical role of the law in evangelism and also a real-life example uh, of leading someone to repentance and faith in Christ. And we're going to see how effective the law is in leading someone to repentance. On Wednesday, we introduced how even Jesus used the law to lead people to salvation through faith alone in him. Even Jesus used the law many times. And the apostles, in their evangelism, they followed suit as they went forward by faith, obeying the Great Commission. So due to time constraints today, as this is you know, the last part in the series, it's a two-part series, I'm not going to be able to review much from Wednesday. So I really hope you'll listen to Wednesday's message if you weren't here. It'll fill in a lot of uh, gaps. One thing I do want to share with you again on the board, <clears throat> and this came out on Wednesday, Regarding genuine salvation, to be saved, there must be a transfer of trust to Christ alone in someone's soul. Just think about that. A transfer of trust must take place from trusting in something else already, like self, like our own goodness, like our church or religion or membership in a church to save us. It must be a transfer of trust from that thing that lie that we bought for a lot of years, transferring it to Christ instead. And that's like, again, a picture, of course, of repentance and faith. Unless someone turns from trusting in themselves or whatever they're trusting in to be saved, then they're not going to transfer their trust to Christ alone, which is the biblical mandate for salvation. So thus the, the call, again, to repentance in Holy Scripture as part of the gospel presentation. And that's what the law is so effective at in bringing people to, a place of repentance. So again, turn in your Bibles to Acts 26, 19. Acts 26, 19. And we're just going to see one example here of what Paul, the apostle of grace, actively preached while evangelizing people. <clears throat> some people, some Christians even, don't even think it's appropriate to talk about sin or repentance. It's all about grace. So what was the apostle of grace doing when he said this in Acts 26, 19? Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, 
and also to the Gentiles, in other words, everybody, I declare that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Some Christians would be even appalled at this, saying it's adding to grace somehow or it's being legalistic somehow. But this, my friends, is where the rubber meets the road in the heart of a man. And the Apostle Paul knew this. Where there's genuine faith, there will be evidence of such faith. And this is basically what Paul said in verse 20. So Paul not only preached the gospel, but he in effect also said, don't fool yourselves. Don't fool yourselves. If you really repent, this is what it looks like. Some Christians don't want to bring up sin when preaching the gospel, and that's a big mistake. Now, don't get me wrong, there's a right way to do it, which is basically gentleness and love, but it's a big mistake to not bring up sin when preaching the gospel because there's no problem in view. How do you, how do you give someone a solution if you don't tell them what the problem is and they don't even know what the problem is because they're ignorant? They don't understand spiritual things yet if they're an unbeliever. So we can hold their hand and lead them to the water of salvation. It is not gracious to hold back the very reason someone needs to receive the grace of God. That's not gracious to not talk about sin because you don't want to offend somebody. Something tells me that our society has affected us, has poisoned us with political correctness to not be able to even say the truth to people in honesty. Remember, Jesus told the Pharisees that unless they believed in him, they would die in their sins. He said that to them twice. So here's a little insertion from the Spirit in this series on the topic of dying in your sins. And that's a quote from John 8, 24. If someone refuses to turn to Christ in humility then they remain in their sins as Christ's forgiveness and righteousness will not be credited to their account. I should say be. It will not be credited to their account. Hopefully that makes sense. I mean, that's what the Bible says. We'd love everyone to be saved, right? But the love of God doesn't save everyone because people are allowed to make their own choice. If someone refuses to turn to Christ in humility, they remain in their sins as Christ's forgiveness and righteousness will not be credited to their account. John 8, 24, and also 2 Corinthians 5, 20 through 21. That's where it talks about Christ took our sin upon himself and gave us his righteousness. But he only gives his righteousness to believers, those that trust in him. And then another caveat to this dying in your sins idea is personal sins are used to describe the judgment of the unsaved. As in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10 and Revelation 21, 8. Now we're not going to turn to these verses this morning. This is an insertion. I want to get through the whole subject here. But it's something to think about and look up for yourself for your own conviction. Personal sins are actually used to describe the judgment of the unsaved in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10, Revelation 21, 8. In other words, it doesn't just say because they didn't believe in Christ, they're going to be judged. It doesn't just say that. It says liars and thieves and adulterers, etc., 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 have their place in the lake of fire. Why? Because they're still in their sins. They refuse Christ's payment. So something has to take place. And this is part of the truth we have to let people know. Like, what kind of friend are you if you don't let your friend know this? Honestly, there's a right time and a right place, but very often we um, use that as an excuse, don't we? <laughs> so if someone can die in their sins, per Jesus' own words in John 8, it might be a good idea to bring that up in evangelism. What also came up on Wednesday is that our Lord Jesus was full of grace and truth. John chapter 1. Full of grace and truth. 
And this is how Jesus himself also preached the gospel. We're going to get to this again. If Jesus preached all grace without truth, they probably would not have hung him on the cross. They probably would have let him be. Because by teaching all grace without truth, you're letting them be. You're not confronting them with the truth as a loving friend would do. Jesus preached uncompromising truth as well as grace because of his tremendous love for his creation. His heart, as we know, is he wants everyone to be saved. That's the heart of God. And so how are they going to be saved if they don't know the truth? If they don't know the judgment they're under? As William Booth, who is the founder of the Salvation Army, he stated this before his death in 1912. The chief danger of the 20th century will be religion without the Holy Spirit, Christianity without Christ, forgiveness without repentance, salvation without regeneration, politics without God, and heaven without hell. Again, as I said on Wednesday, it appears this man was a prophet. He hit the mark, nail on the head, 100 years ago. So, for example, we talked about also on Wednesday, why are many churches today teaching forgiveness without repentance? Maybe because it's easier for them. But is it being truthful? They end up denying people the opportunity for true freedom by surrendering to God and turning to Christ in humility. If someone doesn't think they need to surrender, quote-unquote, if someone doesn't need, need to think, I think they need to bow before him, right, in repentance, that attitude that God is waiting for, they're not going to turn to Christ in humility to be saved. They're not really going to turn to him. They, they might use his name. So we saw this example, and this is part of the Great Commission. Jesus makes it clear how forgiveness comes on the board. Luke 24, 45 through 48 in the New American Standard updated version. Then he, Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Part of the Great Commission that we are to obey is preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the apostles understood this too, and they did this. The apostles did this when they preached the gospel. You know, a lot of people that like to stay in the letters of the church you know, stay in the letters, stay Romans on, just stay over there because it's finished and we can just learn all that theology, which is wonderful. But what about the actual preaching of the gospel that the apostles actually did in obedience to Christ's own words? So, for example, turn to Acts 2.38. Acts 2.38. We're just going to see quick examples here from Peter. <clears throat> And he was obeying the, the, the principle on the board that the Lord told them to do before he went to heaven. This is, this is days later, folks. This is days after Jesus said this on the board, that Peter said what we're going to read right now. Look at Acts 2.38. And Peter said to them, this was the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Just notice what came first. Repentance comes before the forgiveness of sins. Look at Acts 3.19. Acts 3.19. We're talking about an attitude of the heart that God is waiting for. Repent. The more and more I, I, I study this and learn about this, to me, adi- uh, repentance is an attitude. In, in someone's heart, you know, and they finally uh, raise the white flag, right? It's an attitude of the heart about one's sin against God. However that manifests itself could be different for every person and 
some way. But it's the attitude God's waiting for. Unless someone comes to that point, they're not going to realize the need for a Savior and to transfer their trust to the Savior alone. So Acts 3.19, Peter said, Repent therefore and turn again that your sins may be blotted out. There's forgiveness of sins. What has to be done first? Repent. And look at Acts 5.31. Acts 5.31. This is just leading up to what our main topic is really, which is that the law should be used in evangelism. That is, the law is, is one of the main sources of effective evangelism. Without it, you're probably going to be ineffective. You're probably going to have words fall on deaf ears. So this is just setting the stage. Uh, Acts 5.31, God exalted him, Jesus, at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. The implication is, if God doesn't first give repentance to someone, they will not receive forgiveness of sins. So we also saw a real life example of forgiveness. How does forgiveness work in real life with our neighbor? How does it actually functionally work? Turn again to Luke 17, verse 3. Luke 17, verse 3. For example, how does one experientially forgive someone else if they refuse to apologize? It's pretty tough, isn't it? Isn't it? It's pretty difficult. How does someone experientially forgive someone else if they refuse to apologize? Look at Luke 17, 3 through 4. Jesus said, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times, saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You see what comes first? It's pretty obvious. It's like the ABCs. A comes before B. This is real life. If he says, I repent, you must forgive him. So this is how life works according to our God and creator. So bringing it back to salvation on the board. Regarding genuine salvation, unbelievers won't experience forgiveness in their own lives until they have an attitude of repentance towards God and turn to the Lord Jesus alone to save them. As the Apostle of Grace stated in Acts 17, 30-31, and 20, 21. We saw those on Wednesday. How Paul spoke repentance and faith to everyone. Again, unbelievers won't experience forgiveness in their own lives until they have an attitude of repentance towards God and turn to the Lord Jesus alone to save them. That's the biblical fact. That's the biblical reality. The evangelism example we're about to see today is connected with this fact on the board regarding effective evangelism. That God's law should be used as an impetus to help people see their need for the Savior. To help people repent, in other words. God's law should be used as an impetus, as something to push people to Christ, away from self to Christ. God's law is the effective tool that even Holy Scripture tells us to do, to use. We might say God's moral law is seen in the Ten Commandments. And remember also it's called the law. God didn't call it like a list of to-dos or, you know, a way to have a happy life, good life. He called it the law. And that should make you think of God's courtroom in heaven. And that there are repercussions in a courtroom that a judge must go through, must follow through on, when the law is broken. So the Ten Commandments, for example, can be rightly used to humble people to a point of true repentance. Some of you might be saying right now, but is that biblical? You know, aren't we under grace? Well, we believers are under grace. 
Amen. Thank God. What are unbelievers under? What is required of the unbeliever? What, is, what does the Bible say is required of the unbeliever? We just went over it, that he's commanded to repent and believe. On the board, what are unbelievers under if they remain unbelievers? Condemnation and wrath, according to the Lord Jesus and John the Baptist. John three eighteen and 36. Shouldn't we, like, tell people that? Let them know, at least? Hey, by the way, I hate to tell you this, but, I mean, at least give them something to think about, shouldn't we, when we have the opportunity? That's the reality. <clears throat> Unbelievers are not under grace like believers are. And according to Paul's description of us before we came to Christ in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you can read that later on. But we were dead in our trespasses and sins. That's what an unbeliever still is at. We're not anymore if we've trusted in Christ alone. But they are still there. So it's very gracious to tell people the truth, is it not? Even if it hurts. It's an act of grace to tell people the truth of the matter. And we're going to see this is the biblical nature or we're going to see the biblical nature of this approach in a moment. How might I use the law? Like, you know, in experience. We're going to see an example of this. We saw also Charles Spurgeon talked about using the law a lot in evangelism. He said, in fact, he thought it was vital on the board. He said, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. The law is the needle, and you cannot draw the silken thread of the gospel through a man's heart unless you first send the needle of the law to make a way for it. An interesting analogy. God does this work in the heart, obviously, but shouldn't we plant and water, as the Bible says we plant and water? Shouldn't we do that the best way we know how? Shouldn't we do that the way God suggests? Even the Lord himself used the Ten Commandments to lead people to repentance, to gently bring people to a realization of their need for the Savior. And why is presenting the law so um, effective in evangelism? Because without a repentant attitude, there's no forgiveness, right? So it brings someone to repentance. I love these next verses coming up about, about what the Lord does to somebody's mouth. A beautiful thing. So again, go to Wednesday's message for more on this, but on the board, here's a main point in our lesson regarding effective evangelism. In his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sin against God. Matthew 5, 17 through 30, Luke 18, 18 through 20, John 4, 16 through 18. So turn in your Bibles again to John chapter 4. John 4, we're going to start in verse 13. We've been seeing a lot about this woman at the well. She's a great example, uh, not only of someone who was evangelized, but of an evangelist. She was the first Gentile evangelist. I guess you might say. She was a Samaritan, and she led her people to Christ. But Jesus, in this passage, alluded to her living in adultery, which I'm sure tweaked her conscience, uh, besides the fact that he knew a lot more about her. Look at John 4:13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty forever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So with great gentleness and tact, Jesus reaches her conscience through the law she had broken, humbling her and helping her seek him to be saved. And one point we've been learning for years now is that a healthy fear of God is a very good thing. And that's what's really missing in the world now. Fifty hundred years ago, almost everyone had a healthy fear of God. You know, there was this awareness that you were going to answer to him someday. It's not present out there now. So maybe it's our job as evangelists to bring people back, to lead people to the water again, to drink of Jesus' well. A healthy fear of God is a very good thing, and that's where the breaking of God's law is very valuable for a person to realize. How many people do you think out there think they haven't broken God's law? I think a lot. I'm not going to put a percentage on it. But I think a lot of people haven't even thought about that, or they think they're a good enough person where they haven't. Maybe they've never seen the Ten Commandments, for example. Maybe they saw them when they were eight years old in CCD class, right? And that's the last they remember of it. So guess what? It's not on the mind anymore. I'm a pretty good person. Isn't that what you find, we find out there as, as the norm? So this, that's a big stumbling block for them. They don't realize it, but that's a huge stumbling block. So the value of helping someone realize they've broken God's law can lead people to Christ. Go to uh, Matthew 5 again. <coughs> Excuse me. Some remnants of that virus. That was a nasty booger. All right, Matthew 5. Uh, Jesus break, brings up breaking the commandments against murder and adultery. But here he makes it even more convicting by letting us know that even when we've just intended these things in our hearts, we're guilty of them in God's eyes. You want to convict somebody? You want to open someone's eyes to their guilt before God? Use this example. Because God looks at the heart, which means you can't escape it. Matthew 5, 17. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of these, the least of these commandments, and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we should uh, teach them, huh? Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Seems a little harsh, doesn't it? God looks at the heart. What can you say? God looks at the heart. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If this type of truth doesn't humble people, I don't know what will, right? God looks at the heart, and no man can escape that. So we're going to use this as an example later on. Again on the board, regarding effective evangelism. In his evangelism, Jesus often used the law to lead people to a knowledge of their sin against God. Any honest man will admit he cannot keep these righteous commands perfectly, and this will cause him to reach out in his soul to God for mercy. Our last example listed here is Luke 18. We're not going to turn there. This is the rich young ruler who wasn't willing to be honest about his breaking the commands. 
But Jesus still brought them up in hopes that he would humbly respond. So Jesus was leading sinners to repentance by using the law. If the Lord did this, shouldn't we? Of course, he's our great prime example, and the apostles did it too. So on the board, the law is our tutor. The apostle Paul, the apostle of grace, that's what a lot of people call him, also wrote about the value of the law in evangelism. That this isn't like a new thing. Like it's something that, honestly, I've overlooked. I've overlooked its value and, and its, uh, its usefulness in evangelism. For example, Romans 3, 19 through 20 and Galatians 3, 21 through 24. So turn again to Romans 3, 19. Romans 3, 19. <clears throat> Were a lot of you partying last night? Thanksgiving weekend I see some eyes closing I see some uh, dreary looks like you just got out of the rain uh, it's funny it's funny see I can I can understand what past is going through sometimes because I get to experience this from this point of view you know uh, it's great all right anyway wake up the Apostle Paul also wrote about the value of the law and evangelism Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Think about it. How about in the secular realm? How about if someone's breaking a law and they don't realize they're breaking a law? Do you really expect them to repent, to use a biblical word? Do you expect them to be remorseful about it or stop doing it? They don't even know they're breaking the law. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And Satan's done a great job with people in the world, helping them believe they're not even breaking any laws. In fact, there are no laws today, right? There's no right and wrong today. Satan's done a brilliant job at deceiving people and clouding right and wrong. So we see one function of God's law in Romans 3 is to stop the mouth. I love it because it's, so, it's such a visual aid. Like you could picture this happening. And I've seen it happen using this method in evangelism where people are talking, justifying themselves, right? I'm not that bad a person. I haven't done this or that. And then you say this and you say that about the law and they go, hmm, hmm. Awesome. That's why I love doing funerals. Everyone's mouths are closed. Seriously. It's the only time people are actually listening. You don't listen when your mouth's open. So the law stops the mouth. It stops the yabuts. Yeah, but I haven't done this. Yeah, but I'm pretty good. Yeah, but I helped the homeless. Yeah, but you've broken all Ten Commandments. How's that? Don't say it that way. <laughs> you know what I mean? That's the point you have to lead them to as a friend. Say, you don't, you don't see the problem yet. So through the law comes a very vital knowledge of sin against God. Unless someone gets there, they're not turning to Christ. I really, don't, I really believe that. Look at, um, on the board, I, I put for you Galatians 3, 21 through 24 in the New American Standard Updated. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, in other words, if you could get eternal life by obeying the law, if you could actually accomplish that, then righteousness would indeed have been based on the law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Notice one has to come before the other. They have to be shut up under sin or realize that they're under the judgment of sin before they will receive the promise by faith in Jesus Christ, before they will believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith 
which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. You want to go out there and tell people they can be justified by faith in Christ? That's a noble thing. That's a truth. But unless the law is their tutor, they're not going to even think they need Christ. So they're not going to receive the justification by faith they can have through Christ. Understanding God's law and that we can't keep it all, that's what acted as our tutor. That's what woke us up and led us to faith in Christ. So we can use the law in the same way. On the board, <clears throat> the law and a man's conscience are two of our best friends in witnessing to others about Christ. Embrace this on the board. Believe this. These are two things that God's provided so that we can humble someone enough where they'll listen to the good news. The law and a man's conscience. Use it. And if you're friendly about it, if you're loving about it, you can do this. This is not even offensive if you show someone you really care about them and you want them to know the truth. So hopefully that makes sense. Again, on the board, the law and a man's conscience are two of our best friends in witnessing to others about Christ. Hopefully you see the biblical way to use the law as a tool to lead people to Christ. And at this point, I want to get into our real-life example that will illustrate using the law to close people's mouths so they will actually listen to their need for the Savior. And just keep in mind, this is all done in the gentleness of Christ, in the love of Christ. That's very, very important. It's the kindness of God that leads man to repentance, remember, in Romans 2.4. So, our real-life example. As many of you know, some of us do surveys for the church at the local park or mall. Uh, so we're going to call this segment just another walk in the park, but for two reasons. One reason's obvious. This took place in a public park. Number two, this should be how normal evangelizing is for us, how natural it is. When I say natural, I don't mean in the flesh. I mean in the spirit, right? If you're in the spirit, if you're, if you're listening to the spirit, if you're willing to do God's will, this should be a natural part of our lives, of who we are as believers. So it should be, quote, unquote, just another walk in the park when you talk to someone about Christ. Why do we make it into a project? We, we do it to ourselves. That's our flesh being scared. That's what it is. We do it to ourselves. What would happen if we walked by faith every day, if we had pure faith every day? We would have no apprehension about bringing up the Lord to people and making sure they're safe. None of us are perfect. Thus, the need for prayer and reading the Word of God, right? <clears throat> but if we believe it depends upon the Lord and we're simply messengers, this should be a norm in our lives. So first of all, to witness for Christ is who we are and what we do. It becomes us as we grow in the Word. Very simply, we are His witnesses. That's who we are. And that's why, as we grow, evangelism becomes just another walk in the park. I know you all have a desire to see people saved. You might be intimidated by certain situations or uh, talking to people. At times, we all have our weaknesses, but you want to see people saved. Well, allow this example to make it more normal for you as a Christian. So after asking a person's background, such as where they come from, and their basic beliefs, like, you know, did you grow up in a religion, a certain religion? After asking some basic things like that in the survey, we then hope to get to this question on the board. If you were to die tonight, where are you going and why? Or if you want a little maybe easier, less direct question, do you believe there's an afterlife? This is what we want to get to when talking with someone. Heck, you could be talking to somebody about football. 
You could be talking to somebody about their work, their job. And then the, the conversation turns to how difficult life is and how they don't understand why things are the way they are. And then there's your opening. Do you believe there's an afterlife? you think there's anything better after this? This is super valuable because what I've seen from experience too is it opens people up, but also you get to see where they stand. And that tells you where to go next. You know, if someone says, I don't even believe there's an afterlife, well, that's one conversation, right? If someone says, yeah, I believe there's a heaven and a hell and I'm worried about where I'm going. Well, there's a whole other conversation. But now you know where they stand at least. It's a beautiful opening and it gets people to really think. So let the Spirit guide you as you approach people in love and gentleness. So in our real life example, we're going to call the young man that we met in the park, Ima Good, to protect his identity. Glad you laughed. At least you can see the pun. Please bear with me as I try to walk through this whole conversation. I put, it, I put most of it on the board for you. So we're just going to walk through a bunch of slides right now. So sit back and relax. Just see, try to envision this taking place. Um, I've surveyed with, with others' help hundreds of people over the last year or two with this approach. Maybe not the exact words, but this is the approach. This is the order of things. And it's been wonderful. I'm actually really excited about how well it works because it opens people up. So, just another walk in the park. <clears throat> if you were to die tonight, where are you going and why? I'm a good, said. I hope I'm going to heaven because overall, I'm a good person. I try to help people and live a good life. Oh, really? I used to think I was a good person, too. Let's test this, if you don't mind. I'll play the prosecutor, and you play the defendant, okay? And if you say these things with a smile, folks, if you, if you say them in a caring way, that you're, you're out for their concern, their best interests, people do not have a problem with this at all. They go right along. They can see if you love them or not is what it comes down to. They can see if you care or not or if you're just trying to be some, you know, uh, legalistic preacher. So we would say to somebody, you know, they say generally, a lot of people say this, as you can imagine, especially in this area, I hope to go to heaven because I'm a good person. So let me play the prosecutor, and you play the defendant for a minute. I just want to show you something. And just remember at this point, you can say almost anything to somebody if you say it in love and humility. If we approach people letting them know that we ourselves are also in the same boat, there will be very little resistance to this, very little defensiveness. You know, that's why, what, what does it say here at the bottom? I used to think I was a good person too. I'm in the same boat. So let's test this if you don't mind. On another note, before we go on, there's nothing quite like being real with people. Nothing like it. Let them know you're a sinner too, you, that you, you know, I, I've told people in doing, doing the surveys, I said, you know what? This blank page of notebook paper I have right here, I could fill it up in 30 seconds with sins if, you, if, I was, if I had to. I don't want to, but that's how easy it would be. I let them know that I'm no better than them. In fact, probably worse than them. And that relaxes them. And also, don't forget, Paul said, become all things to all men in 1 Corinthians 9. Don't be scared to do that. They want to see you real. They want to see you're honest and transparent. We don't want to put on any fronts. So then the question would be, have you ever lied? You can imagine most people's answers, you know, of course. Oh, yeah, who hasn't? How many times do you think you've lied in your life? Wow, hundreds. I, I have no idea. Can't even count. So, um, what do you call someone that's a liar? I'm sorry, I messed it up. What do you call someone that lies? Sometimes it takes them a minute. A liar? Yeah, right, right? Do you know that you've just broken one part of God's law? The Ten Commandments? Not really, a lot of people will say. How about this? Have you ever stolen something, even as a child? Uh, yeah, right? They'll say with a smile. What do you call someone that steals? 
a thief? You see, you're getting, you're getting them to come to their own conclusions with questions. You see that? You're not accusing them of anything. You're saying, you know what? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever done that? Have you ever thought about that? Ha! What does that make you? You're leading them to their own conclusions. And you know how we're all arrogant, right? If someone's arrogant, they're not going to listen to someone telling them what the truth is. They need to come to their own conclusion about it. And that's the power of questions. So, I'm a good admits he's a thief. Let's go on. Okay, I appreciate your honesty, really. Have you ever used God's name in vain? Kind of like a swear word. Uh, yeah, I'm guilty of that too. I don't mean to, but I've done it. And then I say, yeah, I've, I've done it too, unfortunately. How about this one? Jesus said, if we look at a woman with lust, we've committed adultery with her in our hearts. Have you ever looked at someone with lust? Most people say, yeah, right? So, my friend, I'm not judging you. I've been just as guilty in my life. But you've just told me by your own admission, you've broken four of God's Ten Commandments. And that's just an example. And that's God's law that you've broken, which means these are actually crimes against your God and Creator. Have you ever thought about that? Let me ask you this. If you were face-to-face -face with God tonight, do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? Guilty. Heaven or hell? I guess hell. This is a common response, by the way. I'm sharing with you what the majority of people answer these questions like. This is common. So I'm a good as admitting himself that he's probably destined for hell, even though at the beginning of the conversation he thought he was a good person. And he came to his own conclusions. All you did was help him along, right? You ask good questions. So then you might say, you see, our problem is that God is perfect and he requires perfection to get into heaven. If that's true and the word of God says it is, then how are any of us getting into heaven if we've all broken his commands? So you put yourself in that boat too, right? I've broken them too. How are we going to get to heaven? How is it? I, I try to be good, but I've broken them all. How are we going to get to heaven? And he answers, we're not. Like, oh, crap, right? That's why you want to bring people. Do you see where these questions have brought this man to his own conclusion of guilt and helplessness to save himself? What was he thinking about two minutes earlier at the beginning of the conversation? I'm a good person. I probably can save myself, in essence, right? Now he's come to his own conclusion. Gee, we don't have any hope of getting to heaven. We're all guilty. So you might say, what hope do we have? And I'm in the same boat as you, or at least I was. But there's good news, my friend. If you've heard of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the word gospel means good news. So what's the good news? Most people can't answer that, by the way. <clears throat> Occasionally, you'll get someone that answers it. What's the good news? Even though we're all guilty before God, the Bible says God so loved us he sent his own son to save us from the judgment we actually deserve. Have you ever heard that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and then rose from the grave? A lot of people say, yes, I have. I grew up Catholic. Okay, good. But do you understand the legal implications of the cross? And by the way, I love this question. I've, it opens up. Uh, it breaks people from their familiarity with the name of Jesus. I grew up in the church. I went to church. I've heard that before. Right? In other words, that's great, but I really don't get it personally. If I did, I'd have a different attitude about it. So ask this question. I know you've heard Jesus died on the cross for you, right? But do you understand what that means like legally? What the legal implications are of that? And people say no. So please allow me to explain the good news to you with an analogy. You are brought before the court tomorrow in your nearby city, and the judge finds you guilty of a crime. He says your fine is $50,000.
You say, judge, I don't have $50,000, so he puts you in jail. You might even say to the judge, but judge, I'm overall a good person. I'm sorry. But if he's a good judge, he has to punish you. Do you want a judge letting murderers out in the street? Do you see what a good analogy this is to our God in heaven has to do the right thing? Do you want him letting murderers go? But let's say you're in the courtroom and your best friend walks in and says, Your Honor, I want to pay the $50,000 fine for my friend here. And the judge agrees. He accepts the payment on your behalf. So even though you're guilty, you're free to go, aren't you? Why? Your friend paid your fine. Jesus paid our fine. And pause there. Let them let it sink in. And you know what the common reaction is? Oh. With a smile. Oh. Now I get it. You just help lead somebody to not number one seeing their desperate need for mercy, but to understand what the cross really what really happened at the cross. All through a few key questions. And you could say to Mr. Good, those are the legal implications of the cross. That's the good news of the gospel. The perfect judge in heaven, God the Father, accepted the payment Jesus made on our behalf. But he paid our price, not with money, but with his own innocent blood. We might go on like this. And before he gave up his spirit on the cross... He said three peculiar words. Do you know what he said on the cross before he died? It is finished. Jesus, who actually was God in the flesh, paid the full price for our sins so that we don't have to be judged. What we're commanded to do, if you want to be saved, is to repent and place your trust in Christ alone. That's our part. That's what God requires of us. Repent and place your trust in Christ. In other words... Change your mind. Turn around in your heart. Stop thinking you're good enough to save yourself or you're a good person. You've sinned against God and you cannot save yourself. Only the Savior can. And you, you guys all know this. So however the Holy Spirit leads you to explain this to somebody, it's fine. But this is just what you might go on with, especially once they get that aha moment. And they go, oh, he paid my fine like in full. So notice we're clearly stating the truth, planting a seed in their soul that the Holy Spirit can use later on. I got to tell you, like it's so uh, rewarding. And years ago, over the years, as I you know, tried to share the gospel with people, I couldn't get people to that point, really, to see that light, right? You've all been through it. You, know? you tell people to believe in the Lord Jesus, you'll be saved. I'm like, okay. Almost like a deer in the headlights, right? It sounds good. Doesn't sound like a heart thing to them, though, at that point, does it? So you have trouble getting people to that place. But when you see somebody, you know, really get it, there's nothing like it. It is, it is wonderful. And you know what did it? The law. Explaining the law that we're all under. Basically, in a nutshell, that's what did it. So you might then say to... Uh, the person in front of you, does that make sense? Will you at least think about this and give them a track to take home so they can read it in the quiet time? That's why the tracks are in the back of the church for you to take and have in your car or whatever. Do you have a Bible? If so, if so go read the Gospel of John. Just go see it for yourself. See it with your own eyes. You, don't, you say you don't believe in the Bible? Will you at least look at it with your own eyes? Would you like to talk about this again sometime? And that's a really important question to end with, by the way. Don't leave them hanging. Don't be like, uh, disappear into the night, and then if they have a question, maybe a huge question about salvation, they can't even contact you. Give them that option. Do you want to talk about this again sometime? We're told to make disciples, aren't we? Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations. That means teaching. So you could take someone under your wing, and if they really want to know and they want more information, you could, 
you can read a chapter with them in the Bible. I don't care who you are. You could read John chapter 3 with them and just talk about it and what God's done in your life. Because you know what? A lot of people out there will not come into a church, at least not yet. And you're told to go make disciples. We're told to go make disciples. Don't just give the gospel and run. You know what I mean? Be there for them. Be like, you know what? I was there too. And now I'm saved, like, and I know about salvation. I know about forgiveness. I want you, my friend, to understand it too. Because this is the best news, you know, we could ever hear. We simply need to relate to people and gently tell them the whole truth. I hope you see that's what's going on here. <clears throat> you might go on like this. You and I are guilty before God, so we must stop trusting in our own goodness to get to heaven as religion often teaches us to do, and instead place our trust in Christ alone as our Lord and Savior. Jesus is the only truly good one, and he's the only one that made a satisfactory payment for our sins, according to the Bible. As the Lord Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. And the word gospel means good news, my friend. All of this is because of God's grace and mercy alone. And that's why people say that his love is beyond even imagining. Does that make sense to you? So this is just a conversation you might have after coming to that point where you're able to explain the good news. If you have more time with someone, you might follow up with more scripture. Um, here's just another thing I'll share with you. Because a, a lot of people... You know, when, when they have some type of an aha moment or they see there's something they should at least think about here, right? They, they hang around. They don't just run away. They hang around. Kind of, they're kind of wanting to hear more even though they don't want to admit they want to hear more. So you might elaborate something like this. The only way we could possibly relate at all is to ask ourselves the following. Would you be willing to sacrifice the life of your own child to save the lives of others? No way, right? How about this? Would you be willing to sacrifice the life of your own child to save the lives of your enemies? Pfft, no way. Well, the Bible says that's exactly what God did for us, and we were his enemies in Romans 5. That's the tremendous, overwhelming love of God. That's why it's um, unimaginable and unexplainable. And that's the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Embrace the truth in your heart by grace through faith, and the truth will set you free, my friend. Grab your Bible. Start reading. You want to talk about this some more sometime? Be real. Be honest. Be, guess what? Be like loving. What does God's love look like? It's sacrificial. It's not worried about its own comforts. It's sacrificial. I'll be there for you. You want to go have coffee and talk about this tomorrow? I don't care about my schedule, in other words. I'll change it. And then you might say, salvation is between you and the Lord. And God looks at the heart. The time is short. Go to him and surrender in repentance and faith. He's a good, good God who's rich in mercy. And he loves to give grace to the humble. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, Luke 18, 9 through 14. You might tell them that story in Luke 18 there about the Pharisee and the tax collector and how the Pharisee said, oh, thank God I'm not like other people. And the tax collector couldn't even lift up his head to heaven and was beating his chest saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's what genuine salvation looks like. You might want to tell that story to somebody. Can you tell a story? I know how you were chatting before class. You can all talk pretty good, right? Aren't stories easy to tell? Maybe we should use his parables. Anyone can tell these stories. It should be our norm. It should be just another walk in the park, everybody. I know it's not. I struggle some days too. Trust me. But <clears throat> we keep going forward by faith one day at a time. Pray for strength, pray for wisdom, pray for more faith. And God slowly gives it to you and gives you opportunities. And uh, you have the chance to 
lead people to eternal life. It's kind of ridiculous. It's kind of silly. So you might tell the person to find a Bible and start reading the Gospel of John and that Jesus now calls you to follow him. He wants you to follow him. And that begins by following his word. John 1, 14, John 10, 27 through 28. Would you like to chat again sometime about this? Again, be willing to obey the Lord's command to make disciples. And remember, evangelism should be intimate, as the Spirit brought out uh, last week in our lessons. Evangelism should be intimate because Jesus sought to be intimate. Even with the woman at the well, he's like, let me just talk to you for a minute. Give me a drink. Go get your husband. He sought an intimate conversation. We should appeal to other people as our brothers who are lost. So a few things to recap from our lesson last Sunday. And this really is just, I love how the Spirit works. This was all given to us last Sunday. And it fits right in with our study here on effective evangelism. What came up was, first of all, that one-on-one -on -one witnessing can avoid social discomfort. So seek those opportunities with people that you care about, with people that you know. Seek those moments where you can step aside with someone. Think about the boastful pride of life versus the humility of salvation. Right? The Bible says that man is full of the boastful pride of life. But you can show him that gently by asking questions about the law, as we just saw. Think about doing evangelism in twos, as Jesus taught. Team up with someone. Many of you, you know, are married or, or you have someone uh, you're in a relationship with or you have a best friend or whatever. Team up with someone. Why not? Isn't it a lot easier when you team up with someone? Jesus knew that, among other reasons for doing so. And then present the information, including the reality of breaking God's law, and let God close the deal. Let God close the deal. The pressure is not on us. I mean, I do it all the time to myself. I put the pressure on myself sometimes in witnessing, and I just have to repent. <laughs> I have to confess that. Sorry, Lord. I know I'm just nothing. You, you help me here. And all we do is we present the information. All we are is messengers. And let him close the deal. Only he can do it anyway. So if you'd like a copy of these notes to review the key points of the conversation with the unbeliever, uh, please let me know and I'll email them to you or print them out for you. Uh, but for me, again... This sequence of questioning has been such an eye-opener uh, for me and for the person I'm talking to, nine times out of ten. Uh, so if you can use it in any way, let me know. I'll get it to you. I'd be happy to. So with that in mind, let's now celebrate the very reason we're here gathering together, uh, the Lord's Supper. Um, ushers, if you could grab the elements. <clears throat>
right. Perfect weekend to do this, obviously, with Thanksgiving in view. We have so much to be thankful for. And as we believers know, it starts and ends with the Lord's selfless sacrifice on the cross to take care of the debt we owed God once for all. And I'll just say this before we read the main passage. Um, Every time I look at the cracker in the cup now, all I can think about is his body being broken and that he poured out his blood. That's all I can think about when I see these things. And it's a great reminder. Maybe that's why he chose the bread and the wine and the breaking of the bread and the pouring out of the wine to constantly remind us what he did for us, even though he was so innocent and lovely. So with that in mind, Paul said, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In memory of our Lord, let's eat the bread. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In memory of our Lord. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you again just for another day to celebrate and remember him and to remember that he's coming back soon. And we thank you for helping us celebrate this in remembrance of this with great hope in our hearts because the one who died and is resurrected and is with you right now is coming back soon to honestly judge the world. And we know you're righteous and holy, Father, and you must do the right thing. We thank you for all of you, for who you are and what you do, and that you're a good judge and a good father. Father, we ask that you help us with our evangelism to the world, to the lost, who don't even know they're lost and where they're headed. Father, we ask that you give us more faith more courage and more wisdom to approach people just as a friend in humility and gentleness and in the love of Christ. Father, we ask that you bless us all as we go. It's in Christ's precious name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen.